We're here in Jackson, Mississippi, in the woods at a Wi-Fi site that's serving a subdivision here, and we're talking with Jim Burell, who's Howdy. one of the proprietors of this business, and he's going to show us what's at a typical Wi-Fi site like this. Tell us a little bit of what we're going to see here. Well, we're going to see a basic Wi-Fi cell or base site. It's uh, composed of just two or three main components and a few little accessories. We'll see the main components are a router, a wireless bridge, or it could be an access point, and then the hub or switch to tie the two together, and the antenna and all the coax and cable leads to tie it all together. It sounds real interesting. Let's have a look. So how do you get internet access out here in the woods? Well, that was a little bit tricky. We had to call uh, our carrier, Bell South, and we had to get them to come out and survey the site and see if they would feed us two T1 lines down at this location. And they agreed to, and here they are. So you got two T1 lines in here? That's correct. They come up right here. A T1 line actually rides on four pair. And so we have eight pair of wires, actually more than eight pair, coming up through here. It actually goes down, it's buried in the ground, and feeds up into here. This is just a patch panel. Or pedestal. Right. Yeah. And uh, then comes down out of there into the ground, and our particular wires come up out of the ground through this conduit and into this box. So shall we have a look inside now? I guess so. What are these two uh, black adapters here with RJ45 connectors on them? They're just like little filters. Uh, we, did not, we did not provide these. The phone company provides these. This is our line and we could just take it out and plug directly into where this is plugged. But it's just another uh, filter or noise suppressor. Okay. Who provides this box? Did you have to buy this? No, we did not. Uh, we did have to buy the pole from the power company. It also uh, houses our power, our electrical current, AC. Okay. But uh, as far as this particular box, no, Bell South provides that, and in fact, they provide all the equipment within this box. They feed into these two smart jacks, they're called. Uh, it's just uh, another name for uh, modulator, demodulator, much like the modem on your computer at home. Uh, you may be able to see it has little lights to indicate if everything is fine and if it's working properly. Uh, after that, it travels down a bus to our wiring, we, which we have coming out here. These two pieces of wires represent our two T1s, and these two pieces of wire go into the ground and into our fenced-in area and enclosure, and finally up to the boxes that are mounted on our tower. Why do you have two T1s here? Is one a backup? That's a very good question, and, and that's actually correct. For redundancy and for more speed. In other words, one T1 would uh, let us move 1.54 megabits per second, but two T1s will let us move twice that amount of data in the same time frame. Okay, Jim, we've, we've traced the uh, line coming from the telco over here, and it comes into this box here. What's, That's correct. What have you got in here? This is the router and the AC power feed. 
and the switch for all the communications. Well, first of all, it didn't look like this on the initial install. What are we looking at? Well, uh, a bunch of unprofessionally mounted gear at the moment. Uh, you start out with it all professionally mounted, but after two or three failures of equipment and uh, remounting and unmounting in the middle of the night or at 4 a.m. in the morning, it pretty much gets to where you just stuff it in here. <laughs> this is a Cisco 2610 router. Uh, it's uh, pretty much stock. It's got about 65 megs of RAM and 16 megs of flash. And uh, it has one built-in TSU and one external CSU-DSU, which are just terminators for the two T1 lines. They're again kind of like modems, modulators, demodulators. And they convert the T1 signals into serial feed to the routers. Frame relay in this particular case with our carrier yeah. bell cell. Uh, so, you got the wire coming out of Bell's smart jacks into our router, and that is actually the feed to the internet, the router. Uh, all of the wireless gear is on the other side, so to speak, of the router. The router is the gateway that ties together the wireless gear to the internet wire. Okay. Continuing on through the chain, coming out of the router, we feed this relatively inexpensive looking switch. It's a five port 10100 switch and it carries two category five or cat five cables up the tower to the wireless base station or the wireless bridge. I'm looking here and I see you've got this router and, and all this CSU, DSU gear and the inexpensive little box here. But where's the transmitter? Ah, the transmitter is at the top of the tower. We've seen your T1. We've seen how it gets in here. We've seen all your routing gear. We're taking your word that there's a transmitter at the top of the tower here. But you're an ISP. Right. Doesn't an ISP have to have a server? Yes. Where would you put a server in the woods? Well, that's a good question. You wouldn't necessarily just want to tie one to a tree unless you had it in one of these boxes. So you put it at the bottom of a lightning rod? Uh, yes. A nice metal tower. Uh, however, we do have it very well grounded, which we can look at in a minute. So it's supposed to take care of that. And so far, at this particular installation, which has been here almost three years, it, it has, I guess, taken care of it because we haven't been struck by lightning. Not here. Other locations, yes, but not at this location. You might be expecting something sophisticated. However, it really doesn't take a lot to be a web server. In fact, you can use a small box. This is a physically small, compact brand uh, desktop. Uh, it's a 400 megahertz CPU running Linux uh, 7.3 Red Hat. Uh, it serves as both uh, web server 
a DNS server and the FTP server as well as holding the uh, home pages for all the customers served off of this particular pop. So where is the, is the mail server located remotely from here? Oh, I'm sorry, I, did, I just did not mention it. It is also the mail server. This is the guy wires and anchors Correct. for the tower? Three anchors, four guy wires, each anchor 120 degrees apart. Uh, this anchor is like an auger. It's screwed into the ground, then concreted. These are dead-eye, quarter-inch, uh, galvanized guy wires uh, set at, I believe, 20, 40, 60, and 100 feet. I notice there's a lot of slack in these guy wires. Is that typical for a tower this size? Yes, many many people ask that question and many people think that they should be very taunt. But uh, in fact, you want it just the opposite so that the tower can bend and sway with the wind. How far on the ground does this thing go? It goes about as far as it is exposed, so about another four feet down. And how much concrete is poured on top of that? About two of the big bags of quick creek. I can tell you something else about this anchor, or these anchors. We dismantled a similar site to this. And after we had disassembled the tower and taken the guy wires off, when it came time to move or pull up the anchors, we had a uh, Caterpillar bulldozer and it could not pull them up out of the ground. Wow. That's, that's strong enough. Yeah. Now we are here in Mississippi and there's a hurricane approaching <laughs> as we speak. Uh, it's expected to make landfall in the next couple of days, but that won't bother us here. I think we're rated to, with this particular set of guy wires and tower, I think we're rated to above 100 mile per hour winds. But of course, hurricanes can blow harder than that. Yeah. How high am I? Well, right now you're at the 20 foot level. Each tower section is 10 feet long. Actually, you're not quite at 10 foot because our first section is four foot in the ground. So I guess that'd make it 16 feet. However, if you want to climb to the top, you're going to have to go about another 120 feet. <laughs> that is the transmitter. The transmitter, the transmitter's power supply, an amplifier, and the amplifier's power supply, and then the coaxial leads that go up to the antenna that you can probably just make out on top. Uh, the antenna is not very big. It's only about four inches wide and about one inch deep and about two and a half feet tall. Is that omnidirectional? It's not. It's directional. The radiation pattern is like a 45 degree arm out from each side and everything in between. We're back in the studio now to do a quick wrap up on our Wi-Fi segment today. Uh, Jim, we appreciate you showing us around. Uh, we had a, a great time. 
obviously we left out a few things that we should have talked about. Uh, during the show, you kept talking about a CSU-DSU. Right. Well, what exactly is that? It's a channel service unit, data service unit. Uh, a frame relay line is split into 24 channels. And the channel service unit can uh, group those all together or split them apart. For hmm. instance, into two circuits. Maybe you use half of your 24 channels for voice and the other half for data. Oh. And the data service unit, as you can imagine, services the data that is output from the channel service unit. I see. Well, that's, that's pretty interesting. So they're using the same copper wires for both voice and data, even on a T1? Actually, yes. Or a frame relay. Yeah, T1 is digital, but uh, it can be run across copper pair. Often uh, it's not. It mm. comes in over a fiber mux or something similar. But uh, yeah, you can buy a T1 differently. You can get a PPP or point-to-point -point T1. And then you you do not have those options. There is there are no channels to split. Okay, it's a dedicated circuit. Exactly. Is the bandwidth of these two T1s shared among all your users? That is correct. All of the scribers that are transmitting or receiving at that particular moment in time. Do you uh, guarantee them any kind of uh, certain amount of bandwidth? We have the capability to do that, and we often provide those services. Uh, usually to our business customers. Residential customers don't typically uh, reserve that bandwidth. How many users can this site provide service for? You've probably heard of Erlang, which is used in the phone industry as a measurement or a gauge of how many simultaneous users versus how many total users you can put on a particular circuit or whatever. Uh, Erlang numbers for telephone lines are something like 1 to 12. Uh, by that they mean one line will service one simultaneous user, but you can split that among up to 12 people. Now that's a little bit optimistic if you ask me. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> we, uh, for in the data world, they say 5 to 20, 5 simultaneous users versus 20 total online users for a, a channel. So you can multiply that out by 24 channels and see how many. However, we do not. Uh, that's also very optimistic and we do not uh, subscribe. We only put about 100 customers per T1 total. And we typically find that we have simultaneously online anywhere from 10 to 25. Okay. Even if there's 25 total, not all 25 of those people are transmitting at the same time. Maybe one, maybe two are doing an FTP. Others are reading email and surfing. So most everyone will feel like they have a big pipe. Exactly. How much is your electric bill every month? Very cheap, very inexpensive. It's $11 and change per month. Wow. But when you think about it, we really have nothing that draws a lot of electricity. Yeah, that's true. What is the total cost of the equipment and the tower? Actually, it's Just gotten estimate. very reasonable, very, very inexpensive, uh, including the tower and installation. Say, just to go from scratch to completely set up and operating, not counting the cost of your circuits, which are a monthly recurring cost. Just, just your one-time cost only, less than ten thousand dollars. Wow, that's not that's not too bad. 
Well, Jim, again, we appreciate it. My and uh, we look forward to seeing you in some more episodes. But now everyone has heard about Hurricane Katrina and the damage and destruction that it caused across the Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama Gulf Coast. We're about 150 miles inland from the coast. Here in the Jackson, Mississippi area, Katrina was still a Category 2 hurricane. That's right. The main problems we experienced here were widespread power outages, telephone and cell phone outages, loss of internet connectivity, and a severe gasoline shortage. Yeah, if you don't have any electricity, how are you going to pump gas? That's true. Also, most of the evacuees that came up here from the, from the coast and from the New Orleans area came on empty tanks. That's also correct. Food was also in short supply, and we're just now starting to get reserves. Well, we want to focus on electricity today. Without electricity, things can get a little bit tough. Yeah, that's why we want to give you a few pointers on best how to deal with it. I own a 5KW generator, but it wouldn't crank, and I was unable to repair it, so I relied on two 300-watt power inverters during my three-day outage. I was able to supply my uh, notebook computer, a TV tuner card, a small fan, and some lamps. I could go several hours without having to crank the truck to recharge the batteries. I was forced to use electricity flowing from my receptacle. I was one of the lucky 3% that didn't ever lost power. <laughs> you dog. Actually, today, 12 days later, there's still about 2,000 homes in the Jackson area, and a lot more than that south of us that still don't have power. The power inverters work great. However, I did uncover one quirk, and we wanted to discuss it in a minute. For the few of you who don't know what a power inverter is, it's basically a solid-state alternator that produces AC power from a battery. Just plug it into a cigarette lighter or connect it to a car battery and you're set to go. Power inverters are available in a wide range of wattage ratings. I've seen them ranging from uh, 7500 to 2500 watts. Wow. Uh, you have to be careful with the higher wattage models though because they do require more current from your battery, even under low load conditions. You can find a power inverter almost anywhere from the auto parts store to the mass merchandisers. Prices start around $40. During my use of the inverter, I did discover one problem. I plugged one of these surge suppressor power strips into the inverter and the overload circuit tripped immediately. There wasn't anything plugged into the strip at all. Hmm. What do you think the problem was? Well, the output of a power inverter is not exactly the same as your standard AC line current. Let's take a look and see what the differences are. Kids, we're professionals. Please don't try this at home. We measured the AC voltage coming right out of the wall socket and it was what you would have expected, 120 volts. Yeah, the waveform uh, looked good. It wasn't a perfect sine wave. The corners were a little funky, but that's normally what you'd see. When we looked at the inverters, we were a bit surprised at what we saw. Well, this doesn't look much like a sine wave. It's actually a semi-sine wave created by a series of ramp voltage steps. The voltage was lower, too. We only measured 100 to 102 volts. We tested two different inverters by different manufacturers and found almost identical results. It's easy to see why there might be some problems with this type of power. The power from the inverter contains numerous spikes and other garbage. So the surge suppressors in the power strip reacted to this? That's correct. Whenever they see a voltage spike that exceeds their ratings, the surge suppressor short, and this causes the inverter's overload to trip. So how do we get around this problem? Remove the surge suppressors? 
Exactly. For a light or a fan or something like that, you wouldn't be too concerned with spikes. But with electronic equipment, you've got to determine if you're willing to risk operating it without protection. In my case, I was willing to risk it. I needed some electricity. Once again, don't try this at home unless you're qualified to do so. We take no responsibility for your actions. This particular power strip has Phillips head screws. Some of them don't. You, you're liable to find security type of screws in there. You really may not have a screwdriver that will fit something that looks like that, but you can generally take a little X-Lite tweaker and work your way in there and, and get the screw out anyway. Or a star driver or uh, maybe even an Allen wrench. Different power strips may use different type of surge suppressors. This particular one has some MOVs mounted from ground to either leg. What you want to do here is open it up carefully, cut the leads, and remove the devices. These have already been cut. And then you'll just reassemble the strip. After you do that, you want to make sure that you mark it somewhere that there's no surge suppression left to this power strip. While we've been discussing power inverters, the same holds true for other forms of alternate power like generators. Some power strips don't have surge suppressors and you should first try to find one of them and use that. But if you don't have one, uh, you need to decide whether or not to modify it. Use the utmost caution if you do. Make sure you unplug the strip first. And if you're not 100% certain about what you're doing, stop. Don't do it.